0: Also, if you missed a bulletin on the way in, you can raise your hand. They'll get you the message notes, so you'll you'll have a place to jot down some notes along the way today. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 as we begin our new Christmas message series. I'm calling the message series this month, The Dividing Line Between B.C. and A.D. Today is part one of that message I'm calling, well, this is actually the wrong title. (laughs) It's correct on your bulletin. The title is The First Good news. The first good news. Well, in the grand history of planet Earth, the birth of Jesus Christ is the dividing line. Amen? In the year 525 A.D., a Roman monk named Dionysius Exiguus did something that has impacted the world over the last 1,500 years. This guy, Dionysius Exiguus, that's a good-looking beard, isn't it? Kind of reminds me of Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings. I wish I could grow a beard like that. Uh, my wife doesn't, but I wish I could grow a beard like that. And Dionysius Exiguus did something remarkable in year 525. He was a devout Christian. He was also a theologian. He was an astronomer and a scientist. And there wasn't a good calendar system at the time. And so it was very difficult for those who were involved as clergy or involved as theologian. It was very difficult to pinpoint the exact day of Easter a year or two years or especially three years in advance. And so they needed a calendar system so he could identify the religious holidays, especially Easter, and know in years to come when they would fall. And so he developed the modern calendar system. And to the best of his ability, he put 1 A.D. at the point he believed Jesus was born. And so he developed this modern-day calendar system. Now, it took about 300 years for that calendar system to catch on. But by the end of the 9th century, our modern calendar, at least the A.D. part of it, was in wide use throughout Europe. Interestingly, it would be another 800 years before the B.C side of the calendar would be widely adopted. So for about 300 years, we have had this calendar system with this dividing line being the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Dionysius was off by about four years. We know Jesus was born more like in 4 BC. But the, the point still stands. The difference between BC and AD is the birth of Christ. That's the dividing line. And these beautiful words, B.C., of course, stands for before Christ. And this A.D. stands for the Latin word Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord, which is oftentimes changed just slightly to in the year of our Lord. And so isn't that awesome to think about? Even our calendar system proclaims that Jesus Christ's birth is the dividing line in the history of the world. And I think that is so cool. When we come up with a date for anything, even something that was 5,000 years ago, that date is chosen in respect to its distance from the birth of Christ, either before or after. I think that's pretty cool. Well, as we dive into this message series this month, normally when we do a Christmas series, we're looking at some accounts that are A.D., Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Luke chapters 1 and 2, both Matthew and Luke were written after Jesus was born, right? So those are AD accounts of the birth of Christ. We're going to look at the birth of Christ from a different vantage point this month. We're going to look at it from a BC perspective. We're going to look at some wonderful Old Testament passages that prophesied the coming birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to join those Old Testament saints in their anticipation for the birth of Christ, our Savior born to save the world. Amen? Amen. You won't want to miss a single week this Christmas season. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 3. As we're there in Genesis 3, let me just give you the the background leading up to that chapter. Most of you remember what happens in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1, very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then as we get into verse 2 in chapter 1 of Genesis unfolds, we get to read about how God in six days created everything on planet earth, tailor-made to support life. And so God said, let there be light, and there was light. He separated the light from the darkness, and he separated the land uh, from the seas, and then he created the atmosphere, the the perfect atmosphere for an ideal planet to support human life. And so there he created, after he had the atmosphere all prepared, he created the plants on the land, and after creating the plants, he created the the birds and the fish to fill the air and fill the seas and the lakes and and the streams and the rivers. Then God created the insects and He created the amphibians and the reptiles and the furry little animals and the big ugly animals. And then at the end of the sixth day, God's creative genius reached its pinnacle and God created man and woman. Unlike anything else, any other living creature, man and woman, they were created in the image of God. Man and woman were created as moral creatures. He gave them a moral conscience and freedom to choose whether to do what was right or what was wrong. God gave them the ability to love Him and love each other in a way that a puppy dog or a kitten or a chicken could never love God or love people. He gave them a unique ability to love at a higher level, and God gave them authority to rule over the rest of creation. Everything was peachy keen at the end of chapter 1. Everything was looking good even in chapter 2. God places Adam in the Garden of Eden, the perfect paradise on earth. The Garden of Eden was the closest thing planet earth has ever seen to being like heaven. And he places them in the Garden of Eden. He places Adam, to be more precise. Eve is created in the Garden of Eden. But they're both there in that perfect paradise. And they're in perfect harmony with creation and all the animals. Everything is looking good. They come together at the end of chapter 2 as husband and wife, the first married couple on earth. But then in chapter 3, things start going south, right? Remember what happens early in chapter 3? Adam and Eve blow it. The serpent tempts Eve to eat some fruit from the forbidden tree. After she eats it, she gives some to Adam who, like a doofus, eats it as well. He eats of the fruit. Now their eyes are open. Their relationship with God is ripped in two. They begin to die in that very moment they sinned against God. Everyone and everything around them begins dying in the moment sin entered the world. God confronts Adam and Eve with their sin beginning in verse 8. And that's where we pick up Genesis chapter 3. Please follow along as we begin in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? First question God asks in the Bible, where are you? He still asks that question, by the way, today. He wants to know where you are in respect to him. Where are you in your relationship with God today? Verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did God know the answer to that question already? Of course he did, but he wanted Adam to answer it, right? Verse 12, the blame game begins. The man said, "Uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So he's blaming his wife, but at a deeper level, he's blaming God who created his wife, right? I told you not to create a blonde, God. I wanted a brunette, and, you know, she wouldn't have done this. No, whatever it was, he's just blaming his wife and blaming God. Verse 13, the blame game continues. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent The serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now at this point, some of you are wondering, I thought this was a Christmas message. We're in this chapter of the Bible because this very next verse, verse 15 of Genesis 3, is the first time in the Bible... God is giving us a clear hint that Jesus Christ is coming to save the world. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Amen. Now, most of the time we wouldn't say amen to he's going to crush your head. It's like, who's that lady over on the left side that says amen when we're talking about crushing a head? But we know this is a clear allusion to Satan. We're going to be talking about that in the next few minutes. And it is worthy of an amen. I think it's clear in verse 14 that God was announcing a punishment. There in verse 14, to the serpent as a species. From that point forward, snakes would have to crawl on their bellies and eat dust, so to speak. So verse 14 is clear. He's talking to the sneaky snake as a species. But I think it's equally clear in verse 15 that God was announcing a punishment on Satan. So verse 14 is to the species, the snake. Verse 15 is to Satan, who had been possessing that particular snake. And so this punishment is leveled on Satan, this curse... Who was possessing the snake that tempted Eve? This is especially apparent when we flip to the final book of the Bible and read what it says about Satan in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. There in the final book of the Bible, it says this in verse 9 of chapter 12. The great dragon was hurled down. We ask the question who's the great dragon? He gives the answer in that next part of the verse that great dragon is the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So there in Revelation 12 verse 9, we're told that Satan, also known as the devil, is both the great dragon in the final book of the Bible and is also the ancient serpent mentioned in the first book of the Bible. So there's really no doubt about it. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God isn't just saying that there will be an ongoing feud between women and snakes. Women are going to hate snakes, and snakes are going to hate women. Well, that is largely true, isn't it, ladies? (laughs) There's been an ongoing feud over the last 10,000 years or so between women and snakes. Most ladies don't like snakes, and most snakes don't like ladies. But that is not God's main point in verse 15. He is leveling this curse specifically in verse 15 against Satan and his minions. Look at how verse 15 reads in a few other English translations and paraphrases. First of all, this is a translation, the New Living Translation. And I will cause hostility. Actually, let's read this together. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. And you will strike his heel. Now a paraphrase. This is from the Good News paraphrase. Read this with me. I will make you and the woman hate each other. Her offspring and yours will always be enemies. Her offspring will crush your head. And you will bite her offspring's heel. One last paraphrase. This one from the message. Please read it with me. I'm declaring war between you and the woman. I like how that's worded. Between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head, you'll wound his heel. Those are good. They add some clarity to what we read here in verse 15 in the NIV. Many Bible scholars refer to this verse, verse 15, as the proto-evangelium. That's your big word for the day. Say that with me. Proto-evangelium. Tell the person next to you so they'll know you can pronounce it. Proto-evangelium. How many of you speak Latin? You now speak at least one word in Latin. What does proto-evangelium mean? That's the title of the sermon today. It's the first good news. Evangelium, good news, proto-first. It's the first good news. You could also say it this way, the first gospel. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3 is the first time in the Bible that God announces the good news. We got a problem, God says. Sin has entered the world. And it has caused a dividing between man and God, and even between man and woman and man and creation. But I'm going to let you have a little hint here of some good news. One of these days, the offspring of woman, the great descendant, the great, 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 great grandson of Eve is going to take care of this problem that is now on planet Earth. And he is going to bring deliverance to the human race. What a glorious thing. I like how Warren Wiersbe summarizes this proto-evangelium. He writes, God's word to Satan in verse 15, it's called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, because this is the first announcement of the coming Redeemer found in the Bible. To God's old covenant people this verse was a beacon of hope. See Galatians 4, 1-4. To Satan, it was God's declaration of war, climaxing in his condemnation, according to Romans 16, 20. And to Eve, it was the assurance that God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world, 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 through 15. You can look up those scriptures in your own time. I have them on your handout so you can do that. I want to share with you this next quote I think is equally good from Matthew Henry back from 300 years ago. Matthew Henry writes... A perpetual quarrel is here commenced between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil among men. War is proclaimed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. A gracious promise is here made of Christ as the deliverer of fallen man from the power of Satan. No sooner would the wound be given than the remedy was provided and revealed. I love those last two lines. Read these with me, these last two lines. No sooner was the wound given than the remedy was provided and revealed. It's one of the reasons I I love some of these old commentators from several hundred years ago. That is just rich in the way that is worded. That is so, so good. That's just like God. No sooner was the wound given than the remedy was provided and revealed. Within minutes of Adam and Eve sinning for the very first time, God announced that he had a plan in the works to deliver fallen man and crush sin in one fell swoop. Isn't that just like God? God didn't give Adam and Eve all the details, but he gave them these three very important details in verse 15. Number one, detail number one. One of Eve's descendants would save the day. Amen? One of her descendants would save the day. Notice that about halfway through the verse, God mentions offspring. In some of the other translations, it's more literally translated as seed. So he's talking about the offspring or the seed of woman. And notice right after God does that, about two-thirds of the way through verse 15, God uses the pronoun he, singular. God is referring to a single male descendant of Eve who would save the day. On the third page of the Bible, I think this is cool. On the third page of the Bible, God is already announcing that a male child will be born one day to save the world. What else? Detail number two. Satan would would bruise the Savior's heel. The second detail he gives us is he's foreshadowing the coming of Christ here. Satan would bruise the Savior's heel. With the gift of hindsight, we know exactly what God was talking about here. Adam and Eve didn't understand it. Abraham and David didn't even understand it. But we understand it with a gift of hindsight. Look at what it says in the Gospels about what Satan was doing during Jesus' ministry years. We know it was Satan that came to Jesus after he'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And Satan tempted him three times, right? Satan tried to get Jesus to sin before his ministry even began. And we know that it was Satan that later on filled Judas Iscariot. Satan filled him and and tempted him to go to the chief priests and leaders and and lead Jesus into their hands and betray Jesus. It was Satan that tempted Peter and caused him to be a coward and deny Jesus three times, even though up to that point he had said, "I, I will never deny you, Jesus. It was Satan that was tempting the crowd to yell, crucify him, crucify him. It was Satan that was urging Pilate to be a coward and authorize the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Satan was involved directly or indirectly with all of that. And so it shed so much color and light to what we read here in Genesis 3.15. Satan was going after Jesus' heel time and time and time again. He was coming after Jesus. And there's no doubt about it that all that hell that Satan put Jesus through, it was painful. It was really painful. But in the long run, in the grand scheme of things, in the scope of eternity, it was nothing more than nipping at Jesus' heel. Satan in the long run was nothing more than annoying chihuahua nipping at Jesus' heel. If you're a chihuahua lover, I apologize for that metaphor. I imagine this scene. Imagine if you had been there at the foot of the cross and you would have been allowed to go up and inspect Jesus' feet as he was there on the cross. This just came to me the other day. I, I thought it was deep. Maybe you will. But I imagine myself being at the foot of the cross and if the soldiers and the Jewish leaders would allow me to, I imagine myself going up and looking at the feet of Jesus. Now, most people standing further back would have noticed that his feet were overlapped in front of that vertical beam of the cross and a single nail would have been driven through both feet together. But I bet if you had gone up and looked behind the foot that had been pressed up against that vertical beam of the cross, where that nail had been driven through both feet, I'm confident that that back heel up against the vertical beam would have been crushed against that wood. And you would notice a bruised heel. And for a moment... Don't focus on the crown of thorns and the blood sheeting down his head or the blood sheeting down his arms from his pierced wrists or his back that was like hamburger meat because he'd been so severely flogged minutes earlier. Focus on that one little bruise on his heel. That, in the long run, was all Satan could do to our Savior. Amen? See how powerful Genesis 3.15 is? A third detail is given. I love this. And I'm glad Rosie gave us an amen earlier to this. It's so good. The Savior would crush Satan's head. When Satan saw Jesus die on the cross, he thought he had won. But the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead three days later actually drove the final nail in Satan's coffin. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul writes these amazing words. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter two, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away and nailed it to the cross. And I love this last part, especially. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, who are they? Satan and his minions, right? Right. So let me just insert those words instead. I don't think the Apostle Paul will mind. And so having disarmed Satan and his minions, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Isn't that awesome? The devil intended for the cross to publicly shame and humiliate Jesus. It turned out that Jesus used the cross to publicly humiliate and annoy and dishonor Satan himself. Jesus turned the tables on Satan's schemes. Instead of the cross permanently shaming and humiliating Jesus, it ended up shaming and humiliating Satan himself. Even before Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus, the promised descendant of Eve, was starting to crush Satan's head. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. He sent out 72 of his followers to go and drive out demons and heal the sick and preach the good news in towns that Jesus was about to go to. And after they went out and healed the sick and drove the demons out and led people to Christ, they came back to Jesus. And Jesus, after he heard their report, said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? That's not it. You look a little further in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do What? To destroy the devil's work. You look a little further back in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 where it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. That last couple lines stood out to me here. There are so many people around us. Some of us, it's our friends and family. Some of us, it's our coworkers or neighbors. So many people who are afraid of dying, so many people who are afraid to die, we don't need to be afraid to die as Christians, do we? I'm in no hurry to die, but whenever God calls me home, I'm ready because I've placed Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of my life. I do not need to fear death and neither do you, but those that don't know where they're going in eternity, absolutely, they have this fear of death. Jesus Christ came not only to save us, but to deliver us from a fear of death. May he be forever praised for that. Amen. Amen. One last one to consider. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. It's the third to last chapter in the Bible. There's only two chapters in the Bible after Revelation 20. But Satan's fate is, is sealed for sure by this point in Revelation It says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is Satan's final destiny. The nail was already driven in the coffin when Jesus was born and he died and he rose again. The nail's already in the coffin. It's just a matter of time before this happens. Amen? He is a defeated foe and he knows he is a defeated foe. There's no doubt that until the final day of judgment comes, Satan will continue to bruise the heels of Jesus' followers. Many of you have bruised heels today because you've been persecuted for your faith in Christ. Many of you have bruised heels today because you've gone through trials and difficulties and pain because you are a Christian and you follow the Lord Jesus. But you got to know that Satan's fate has been sealed. And as much as those bruises hurt at times, in the long run, in the grand scheme of eternity, you know what? It's just a bruise on your heel. I love the story I read this last week from the theologian Vernon Grounds. When he was a young man going to seminary, he attended a small seminary that didn't have its own gymnasium. And Vernon and his friends liked to shoot hoops. And so they would walk down the street to a local public school and borrow their gymnasium when they wanted to play ball. And so they did this pretty regularly, and there was a janitor that oftentimes would just wait on the sidelines for them to finish because he needed to clean the gym, but he didn't want to interrupt their playtime. You see, he was a Christian. And so he would just pass the time there on the sidelines by reading his Bible. And one day, one of Vernon's friends, after they were a little winded from paying basketball, Vernon's friend went up to the janitor, noticed he was reading the Bible, and asked him, "Uh, what are you reading? And the janitor said, I'm reading Revelation. And that surprised this young theologian, the seminary student. He he asked him the question, well, do you understand it? Do you understand Revelation? And surprisingly, the janitor said, sure, I do. And so the seminary student was curious, what's it about? What's the meaning of Revelation? And that janitor answered, God is going to whoop them all and win. (laughs) Years later, after he became much better known as a theologian, Vernon Grounds said later in life, You know what? All the years I've read and heard commentaries on Revelation... That janitor's commentary on Revelation is the best I've ever heard. In the end, God is going to whoop him and he's going to win. Amen? And God forecast that. He prophesies that for the very first time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Well, I want to share with you three wonderful insights that we can draw from this great verse from Genesis 3. I want to make sure you have these on your handout. If you have those handouts handy, flip to the back. You'll have a few blanks to fill in. Insight number one. Please read this with me. God has a solution. Before you've even figured out, you have a problem. I like that a lot. God has a solution. Before you've even figured out, you have a problem. That's just like God. Immediately after Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden... They knew they had a problem, but they didn't know the half of it, did they? They knew their eyes had been opened, seeing good and evil. They felt guilt and shame for the first time. They knew they were naked. They knew God wasn't going to be happy with them. But for the most part, they were clueless. They didn't know the half of what their sin had done to this world. They couldn't have understood the extent of the devastation their sin would cause. Their sin would corrupt every living thing on earth. Their sin broke their relationship with God and broke their relationship with each other and even broke their relationship with the animals. No more petting the tigers. No more hugging the gorillas. Not a smart idea after sin entered the world. From that point forward, every one of their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids would be born with a perverted sin nature. Every descendant, except for one. Everyone except for one. But long before Adam and Eve had wrapped their minds around the consequences of their sin, God already had a solution in place, didn't he? In fact, he had the incarnation of Jesus Christ in mind even before the foundations of the world were set in place. Isn't that awesome? So let me ask you, if God had a solution for Adam and Eve's sin, even before they sinned, could it possibly be that God has a solution for your problems today, yeah. even before you've completely figured your problems out? Amen? Amen? I think there's a really good chance. Some of us come today and we've got these problems and we don't know how to fix them. God has a solution. In fact, he had a solution long ago. Some of us are going to have a problem tomorrow or on Tuesday. We're not even aware of today. We're oblivious to it. Isn't it encouraging to know every problem that's coming your way in the days to come, God already has a solution for it? So that really sheds a new light on our problems. When that problem comes, oh, no, the sky is falling. We don't have to respond to our problems like the rest of this world because we serve a God who's already worked it out before we even saw the problem. What an awesome God we serve. One of my favorite Bible passages about God's love and salvation is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It's a glorious passage. It says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Read those two lines with me again. God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you and I even knew we were lost... God sent Jesus to find us and bring us home. Before we even knew we needed saving, God sent Jesus to be our Savior. Before you and I even knew that the just punishment for our sin was the death penalty, God sent Jesus to take the death penalty for us. That's just like God. You see, God was working a solution even before we knew we had a problem. Some of you, I believe, need to hear that today. Whatever you're dealing with today, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, he truly does have a solution, even before you figured out your problem. How about insight number two? Would you read this with me? As long as you are following Christ here on earth, Satan will continue to strike at your heels. That's not just a prophecy in Genesis 3.15 referring to Jesus. That's the primary fulfillment of this prophecy. But remember, as children... Of God, As followers of Jesus Christ, the bruising of his heel falls upon us as well. So as long as you are following Christ here on earth, Satan will continue to strike at your heels. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised that we will be completely shielded from all of Satan's attacks. Think about the great heroes of our faith. Noah, Abraham, Job, David, Paul, five of the most godly men in the Bible. All of them were attacked for their faith in God, weren't they? All of them were attacked in some way or another by Satan. Persecution isn't a possibility for followers of Christ, it's guaranteed. And much of that persecution comes directly or indirectly from Satan. But never forget a blow to your spiritual heel is never fatal. Amen? We're not Achilles. A blow to your heel is never fatal in the spiritual realm. It might hurt like the Dickens. But it can't touch your soul or spirit. I'm so thankful for that. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, your soul and your spirit are safe in God's hands. And we hold on to that promise of Scripture that no one can snatch one of Jesus' followers out of his Father's hands. Amen? I've reminded people so many times, and I've prayed this in prayer so many times, there is no safer place to be Than being in God's hands. There's no safer place to be. Than being in the arms of God. And so whether it's a Christian. Loved one that has passed away. And we grieve their loss. We have to remember. If they were a follower of Christ. There's no better or safer place. For them to be in the universe. Than in the hands and the arms of God. And as we go through our own trials. Here on earth. There's no better or safer place to be. Than in the hands of God. There's no better place. There's no better place. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. Finally, insight number three. Please read this with me. Remember that Satan is a dead man walking. He is a defeated foe. His fate was sealed by the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember how that term, dead man walking, developed? Developed in reference to someone walking down that long hallway. They had been on death row for a certain number of of days and months and years, and they're finally taking that long walk down the hallway to that chamber where they're going to be electrocuted and die. And so that term was developed. You're walking toward your death chamber. It's a dead man walking. I want you to begin picturing Satan that way. He makes a big fuss. He can yell and he can scream and he can cuss like none other. He comes out swinging and man, can he bruise heels. But he's a dead man walking. He's already marching down that hallway to the fiery pit of hell. And it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Satan might look like a big scary dragon at times, but from Jesus' vantage point, he's more like that pesky chihuahua. Just nipping at your heels. Revelation 12, verse 11 tells us how to successfully kick Satan in the head. How many of you would like to know how to kick him in the head? Well, we're told in Revelation 12, verse 11, Number one, hold on to the blood of Jesus. We got that verse up there, I think. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So number one, if you want to kick Satan in the head, uh, you've got to overcome him by the blood of the lamb. You hold tight to the cross of Jesus Christ. You hold tightly to the blood of the lamb that paid the price for you to be forgiven. And Satan can't do anything against the blood of Jesus. Remember, he thought he had won when he shed Jesus' blood and it actually just sealed his own fate. You hold tightly to the blood of Jesus. Nothing can touch the blood of Jesus. Number two, by the word of their testimony, your unique message of how Jesus Christ transformed your life and took your sin away, your personal testimony is to be held on to and to be shared with others. These saints in Revelation overcame Satan's attacks by being vocal about what Jesus Christ had done. The gospel of Jesus Christ personalized in your own testimony. Amen. Amen. You hold on to that testimony. You remember how Jesus Christ transformed your life in the day you were saved and you freely share that with others. We've got one of our brothers visiting with us today from the local Gideons. And the Gideons are awesome. They hand Bibles out to thousands of people across this country every year. And the, the Gideons understand that the Word of God is living and active and can transform hearts and, and can save souls because it shares the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love how these men will take to the streets, whether it's in front of a public high school or whether it's at a Victor Valley Rescue Mission outreach or wherever it may be, they're giving out the Word of God and they're quick to share their personal testimony of how Jesus Christ has transformed their lives. Amen? It's a glorious thing. Share the Gospel with others. And sometimes we miss the third key step in this verse, it's that last line, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You want to kick Satan in the head, you have to be willing to die. And you have to understand that even if Satan causes people to rise up and attack you and even kill your body, he cannot touch your soul or spirit. And if you have a willingness to lay down your life And believe that as you are breathing your final breath for Jesus Christ, Satan, you're still only striking me in the heel. That's no big deal. If you can have that attitude that the martyrs who have gone before us had, and you think of death as just gain, and you think of death as just a bruise on your heel, and just another jewel in your crown in heaven because it will not go without reward from God in heaven, if you view it that way, Satan cannot stand Against that kind of witness. One day an old country preacher was challenged by a highly educated agnostic. The skeptic asked, Why do you Christians constantly claim victory when the world's going to hell around you? Everything's falling apart and you Christians still claim victory. Why do you do that? And this old preacher replied, Well, son... It says in the beginning of the Bible that God was in charge. And then I get to the end of the Bible, and my Bible says that God is still in charge. So I figure that twixt the beginning and twixt the ending, ain't nobody that can whoop my Jesus. Amen? And that's the truth of the Word of God. Announced in the third chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. No matter what Satan threw at Adam and Eve, and no matter what he's thrown at humanity since, in the long run, in the grand scheme of things, in the scope of eternity, he only bruised Jesus' heel, but Jesus Christ will crush his head. Ain't nobody big enough Ain't nobody strong enough to whoop our Jesus, our Lord and Savior, born to save the world. Lord Jesus, we come to you grateful and humble today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for setting in motion a glorious solution to our sin problem even before we had that sin problem. Thank you, Jesus, for even before you created us, Choosing to die for us. You created us knowing full well that we would reject you. That we would sin against you. That we would nail you to the cross. You allowed us to be born. And you died for us anyway. Thank you Lord Jesus. Help us to celebrate this Christmas season. The fact that nothing is more than a bruise to our heel. In the scope of eternity. Lord Jesus, Satan cannot touch our soul or spirit. Secure in your arms and in your hands. I pray for every brother and sister in this room today that you would give them peace and strength and hope this Christmas season in Christ. I pray that you would give us all a fresh perspective on our problems. They're just temporary. They're just small. And they will pass. And when we get up against our problems and Satan looks like some enormous fire-breathing serpent, help us to step back and realize he's just a yapping chihuahua. You're going to whip him. In fact, you already have. And Lord, I want to pray right now for anyone who has never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in this room today. We don't want this service to end without every single person knowing, without a doubt, that they have put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their lives. So, Lord, I pray that anyone who's in that boat right now, realizing they're not sure if they're saved or not, they're not sure if they're going to heaven or not, I pray that they would join me in this last part of this prayer, saying, Lord Jesus, please have mercy on me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you're my only hope to make it to heaven. I believe you're my only hope to have a relationship with my Creator God. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please come into my life. Please take the driver's seat of my life and take the wheel and I'm going to start riding shotgun and letting you call the shots in my life. I make this decision today. I choose you to be my Savior and Lord from this point forward. Until you call me home to heaven. And Lord I make this commitment. In obedience to you. I will be baptized. As soon as possible. It's not optional. It's a requirement for anyone who truly. Chooses to follow Christ. I commit to make that decision today. And follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus name. Amen. If you've made that decision, we're going to have Frank up here. My wife Christine will be up here as well. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you made that decision to accept Christ for the first time, uh, we'd love to pray with you and, and set up uh, an opportunity for you to be baptized. We've got water in the tank. We could do it in the next ten minutes if you're ready. Uh, you let us know, and uh, we're here for you. Whatever we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, Amen. If you've got those Angel Tree gifts, make